Welcome to another episode of Me and My Team and the News. This is the week of April 19th, and we're happy to have you. I'm Tim. I'm Ben. And Ben cannot wait to tell you about what he was just telling me about. Ben, what's going on in Florida? Okay, so Florida has this new law called the Riot Law. Basically, gives police way more power to uh, break up protests whenever they want. It also makes it so that if you run over protesters who are blocking the street, you cannot be charged with any crime. Which basically means it's now legal to do a hit and run on protesters in Florida. Does it distinguish between a peaceful protest and a violent riot? Nope. So any gathering of people that is what, without a permit or something? How do they decide this? It's just at the police's discretion. Well, that seems interesting. Uh, where do you think support comes for from this bill, which is, I guess, now law? Uh, the police? Yeah, just the police? Uh, I guess. So uh, let me ask you this. If protests can be violent and stores get destroyed and lit on fire and people get hurt, what's so uh, bad about stopping that? Well, the thing is, it's not really specifically going after that because it doesn't make the, uh, it doesn't distinguish between it, between those very well. And it just gives the police a lot more power to infringe on First Amendment rights. So, uh, it seems like there are people who would would support this. I mean, if they're making it into a law... You know, there must be people who look at this and say, hey, this violence, these protests got to stop. Yeah, I mean, I guess, but I don't really get why they would support it. It's like, yeah, sure, you can have the uh, illusion of safety under the, uh, it's a risk-reward thing. Do you really want to give up your First Amendment rights just so you can feel slightly safer? Well, uh, that is something that is not unique in history. So when you brought this up to me, the first thing it reminded me of was California in the early 70s and the riots and protests that have been going on at college campuses across the country, but particularly in Berkeley. And, you know, you can question whether the protests were right or wrong, but there was certainly an appetite among people that, hey, these protests got to stop. And it was the governor of California who enacted the biggest crackdown on the protests, and it ended up winning a lot of support among voters. That governor's name was Ronald Reagan. He would become president. The governor of Florida, his name is uh, Ron DeSantis, and is said to have presidential aspirations in the next election. Uh, There is something to this idea that you know, protests are not necessarily celebrated by everyone. Yeah, I guess. I mean, so I think the reason I'm against this law personally is because it's it's a response to the BLM protests, which Mm -hmm. Governor Ron DeSantis and his colleagues in the state legislature have already expressed their... um, Well, they're not very fond of them. And studies have found that 93% 
of recent protests have been peaceful. So it's going after the very few. Mm -hmm. And, like, it gives police discretion, and police who are generally more lenient with right-wing protesters. And I think the biggest thing is that you can now run down protesters in the street and not be charged with a crime if they're blocking the street. I mean, that's what happened in the Charlottesville rally. That's true. A guy who drove a car into a mass of counter-protesters and killed someone. I mean, under this Florida law, had he done that in Florida now, he would have gotten off scot-free with murder. That does seem like a crazy addition of the law put into that context. Um, is that what the reaction's been when you've been reading about this law? Uh, well, from critics, yes. From people who... Have you seen anything from people who support the law? Um, the general rhetoric at... You know, the general rhetoric when laws of this kind are passed. This will make our community safer. Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you a, a story I never told you before that might shed some light on why people might support this. So back when the um, Ferguson protests first erupted, we were visiting our family uh, in Missouri, west of St. Louis, and our visit was ending the next day. And we were going to drive back through St. Louis on the way to where we lived. Um, and, you know, you were younger then. You were probably eight or nine, and your two little brothers were much younger. Part of the protest that happened as I was watching this on TV was that the interstates were blocked. And as I watched this, I thought about those first cars that were stopped by the, and surrounded by protesters. And I thought, what would have happened if we'd been on the highway and been that car, if it was me with my family, my young children, surrounded by protesters in a protest that could be violent? You know, what would I do? I think that people see that and I think there's some of that of like, hey, you know, we support the cause of protesters, but we're afraid of the damage and the violence. Certainly, that would be the case for business owners. I know in Ferguson, a lot of the business owners were furious that police didn't stop rioters from destroying their businesses. So what's a law enforcement agency or a government to do? to keep people safe. Now, I agree with you when I look at this law, and I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate with you in terms of it, that there is certainly a, hey, uh, this looks like the kind of law that tramples on the right to peaceably assemble and also the kind of law you would expect not in a democracy. But then again, people, you know, are tired of fear and they're tired of protests and they're looking for anything to say, let's get back to, if we've ever had it, a life in a community that lives in harmony. Well, if people want the protests to stop, instead of demanding that you just keep quelling the protest, how about you do something to fix the issue they're protesting about? Now that is the smarter thing than I've heard any politician say. Like, you know... Yeah, some of these protests can get pretty violent, but the majority of them are peaceful. And this law is just really... takes a very heavy-handed approach and gives the police way more power to decide, is this a peaceful protest? 
Which, considering the police really don't like protesters that are chanting defund the police, mm -hmm. they can often just say, oh, yeah, that one guy, he's vandalizing something, therefore this entire protest is now unlawful. All and right, the deploy the stun grenades. Right. Well, and, and it, it is interesting, too, you know, you mentioned that the way police react to protests can be different uh, depending on who's protesting. I will say that one of the things that's become adopted by protesters in the last few years is the ACAB expression, which I won't say what it means here in this podcast, but for a long time, that was a saying of white supremacists. And it's been adopted sort of by all protesters in some sense. Police used to be the widely considered to be the enemies of white supremacists. And it feels like that's, I don't say it's not the case. I think that's still true. But the perception has shifted in that. Yeah, I mean, police and police unions in general are pretty right-wing and opposed to any kind of police reform. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing as we shift topics a little bit. You know, police have some lobbying power, and yet uh, they would really, really, really like to see much better gun controls law because no police officer wants to walk into a situation where somebody's got an AR-15 pointed at them. And yet they can't get anything passed, and they can't get support of major leaders who otherwise say they support police. Um, that is sort of a conundrum, I think, for officers who are you know, putting their lives on the line every time they pull somebody over, living in fear. Now we've got more cases of police officers who do that, and, and it ends up with somebody dying. Um, it's just a very messy situation. I don't really know what the right answers are for any of that. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to... I mean, each individual case requires a lot of discretion, but I think... The problem is the mentality that we have around guns and that we have around police. Like, police always come to a traffic stop with the fear in their mind that they're going to get shot. And that, re and that makes them do things that wouldn't necessarily be considered the right thing to do. And, you know, sometimes it's out of hate, sometimes it's out of fear, but... You know, to fix the police reform issue, you also have to fix the gun control issue at the same time. They do seem to go hand in hand, and yet there seem to be very few solutions. And as we saw this week again, it's becoming a recurring theme every week. It seems like we could talk about the mass shootings that have been happening. Yeah, but don't worry. The government will do something eventually. Well, you know, the phrase do something was a big phrase in 2019. It was in Dayton, Ohio, and I was covering things in the newsroom when we had that terrible mass shooting in Dayton. And a local business owner um, of Flying Bob's, if I recall correctly, shouted during a governor's press conference in Dayton, do something. And it became a rallying cry. And the Republican governor of the state, you know, tried to get legislation passed to do something. And it never seemed to go anywhere. Well, that's because gun lobbies, even with the NRA going up in flames, mm -hmm. metaphorically. Thank uh, you for clarifying that wasn't literal. <laughs> yeah, but gun lobbies still have a pretty 
solid hold on a lot of politicians and lobbies in general aren't exactly great at helping change things. Lobbies like, I don't think there are a whole lot of lobbies that want to change something. There are lobbies that want to keep the status quo, that want to keep the thing going. You know, the gun mm -hmm. lobbies want to keep the gun, they want to keep the guns going. Corporate lobbies want to keep the lower taxes going. Right. Police lobbies want to keep the same police practices going. Well, in some you cases. I, I think that and when it comes to police practices, we are seeing a lot of police departments reform. Um, but when it gets into politics, it's all just very tricky. Let me ask you uh, about this as we shift gears just again a little bit. I mean, we have the, the Derek Chauvin trials wrapping up. They're in closings. We don't know yet the outcome of that trial, uh, but there's other big news that's been happening. Have you read about or paid much attention to the announcement of the troop withdrawal from Afghanistan? Oh yeah, uh, I have a few words for the about that. Oh. About time, <laughs> really? Jeez, I've grown up my entire life. We've been fighting a war in Afghanistan, so hopefully by September 11th, 2020. I can 2021. Twenty twenty one. Sorry, I can finally live in a world where the U.S. isn't at war. Aren't you a little concerned about what'll happen when American troops leave Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean we have to do it smartly. I know that's not a word, but couldn't think of anything better. We have to do this in a manner that makes sure that the Taliban, Taliban, don't know how to pronounce Taliban. It, Taliban doesn't rise to power again. Mm -hmm. Except but, that we I mean, don't have any way of doing that when we're gone. I think it's an issue of we're trying to solve problems. The U.S. government is trying to solve problems without taking every factor into concern. It's like what happened in Africa with the colonialists in the 19th century. They just kind of decided what was best for the people of that region without ever really consulting what the people wanted. Wow. You know, maybe we should let local leaders who actually know what to do, do it instead of us, thousands of miles away, not knowing anything about Afghan culture <laughs> or the history of the region try to do something for them because if we want democracy to be in afghanistan and we do we have to let them learn how to stand on their own two feet mm, well there is something about that you know we, should, we could have learned from the soviet union who fought in afghanistan for a really long time but could never really take control because of american funded resistance uh i will say you know, the idea, and that was part of President Bush's, the second President Bush's agenda was to nation build in a sense. We were going to take out the Taliban who had helped sponsor Osama bin Laden as a place for him to base his operations and have been pretty brutally cracking down on half the population as in, you know, women um, and create a freer, more beneficial society. Didn't go as planned. And, you know, the initial caretaker government, Hamid Karzai, pledged to only be there to help transition to a president. But then once in place, he decided he liked power and, and, and stayed on. And therefore, the corruption machine just cranked up. So people don't know whether to trust the government or the Taliban or neither or both. 
And every president that's come along and said, how do we solve this has been like, I have no idea how to solve this. Nothing really has worked. And I will say, you know, back, and of course this all happened before you were born, back when uh, we decided as a nation to invade Afghanistan after the September 11th attacks, it seemed like a justified war. I would say that was less true about the Iraq war, which is where more American attention went as soon as we invaded there. Not that there weren't reasons for invading, but there were a lot of other consequences that weren't told about the uh, war in Afghanistan. First of all, was that the U.S. abandoned some of its principles uh, that happens in war. The Taliban, as terrible as it was in many ways, one thing they did do was completely stop the drug trade. They were very opposed to drugs. And while they also were, you know, doing terrible things like oppressing women and destroying uh, anyone who was of a faith other than Islam and their particular version of Islam, they did stop the drug trade flowing from Afghanistan, which was the world's largest opium provider, heroin provider. Uh, when the war started, many of the farmers had only one way to make money, and that was to start growing drugs. Drug lords began to grow in prominence. The U.S. decided to join the forces with some of those drug lords because they had military forces, so the ones who were favorable to us, and we ended up having a massive heroin epidemic that was all folded into that. So that is to say, it's a lot to say, but to just to bear out your point that war and nation building is really complicated and almost never works if you're not living where it's happening. Yeah. I think with the U.S., every president before Biden has been like, all right, how do we solve this? And I don't think they've ever considered the question, can we solve this? Mm -hmm. Are we in the position to make lasting change? I mean, will the Afghan people listen to a different culture 3,000 miles away that's bombing the place mm -hmm. that they live? And I don't think that we can solve this issue for them. They're going to have to figure it out for themselves. And I know that sounds kind of harsh, but... And what happens if they figure it out for themselves and it ends up being, you know, not so great for democracy? Well, that's what the UN's for. Oh. If they turn into another North Korea, then we'll sanction them like North Korea. Yeah. Well, the Middle yeah. East is a pretty complicated place, and I don't have all the answers. <laughs> I don't have a answer. Right. But right. I do believe that it's not our fight, and it hasn't been our fight for like 15 years now. Yeah. Once Osama bin Laden was gone, there wasn't much reason for the U.S. to stay involved in, the mil in a military way. I will say, withdrawals are always tricky for more, and after the first Iraq war, long, 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 long time before you were born, um, one of the real horrible outcomes were that Iraqis who supported the U.S. invasion thought the U.S. was going to stay there and help them after the U.S. freed Kuwait. When the U.S. didn't, they were brutally cracked down on by Saddam Hussein, and we just sort of abandoned them and said, oh, sorry, I thought you guys had this without us. So Yeah, and I mean, there are other ways to support them without violence you know there's humanitarian and monetary aid mm -hmm. i mean the u.s we don't have to solve every issue with tanks yes 
Speaking of... Uh, what if we tried, you know, diplomacy? Uh, yeah, I think they try that sometimes. Um, we have lots of diplomats we pay for in the federal government. Yeah, they never seem to get anything done. I'm sure they do. It's just boring headlines. Uh, but you mentioned the Middle East. Did you see the nuclear attack in Iran? Uh, you mean the attack on the nuclear facility? Yes, that's what I meant. It did not mean an actual nuclear attack. Yeah, there's a big difference. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, yes. Well, I guess it was because Iran was like, we're going to start enriching uranium, which I don't know what that means, but... I think that means making uranium more potent, yeah. which I'm not a nuclear expert, but that sounds like, in my unprofessional opinion, a bad thing. So if Iran was close to being able to have the uranium they needed for a nuclear bomb, and the suspicion is that it was Israel behind the explosion of the facility that set them back at least six to nine months or something like that, would it be justified for Israel to have done that if they acted illegally uh, and in violation of treaties to cause that explosion? Probably not. Why not? I mean, yeah, they're enriching uranium. That doesn't mean they have nukes. They're probably still, I don't know, at least two or three years out from getting... The theory was they were just a few months away. Yeah, well, that's what... That that's what the government wants you to think. Oh, I see. You know, like how North Korea says they have a thousand nukes when in reality they don't have a hundred. Yeah. Doesn't take very many to cause problems, you know. Only two have actually been deployed in war in the history of the world, you know. Yeah. But, I mean, that's why it's important that the U.S. returns the Iran nuclear deal. To get Iran through diplomacy, to give up its nuclear weapons ambitions. Yeah, and then we won't have to bomb their nuclear factories. Why is the U.S. the... Why do you think the U.S. is the lead agency for trying to get Iran to not have nuclear weapons? We are not very close to Iran at all. Yeah, but the U.S. is the world's largest economy, I think. I don't know. Yeah. China's been gaining recently, yeah. but we're the world's largest democratic economy which means that if we impose sanctions on someone that's pretty devastating for their economy hmm. and so you're saying because of our leadership in the econ economic world we have a duty to try to make the world a better place and stop certain countries from having nuclear weapons but not others well I think Iran's definitely not a democracy, and they're definitely not what most people would consider to be a, a stable government. No, I mean, they have power since '79. Well, there's a lot of armed insurgency groups in Iran, and what if one of them takes power and now has access to the government's nukes? Oh, uh, I think that was more the argument in Pakistan. Why it might be dangerous in Pakistan, which, which has had military coups um, before. Uh, and Pakistan is a nuclear nation, nuclear power nation. Of course, they're most concerned with India. But uh, the one thing you didn't mention, and I'll give you a shorter answer why the U.S. cares so much. Of course, there are many Middle East interests, but... Oil. Oil and Israel. Israel is extremely concerned because, you know, a nuclear weapon from Iran doesn't have to have much power behind it to... Get there. Right. And so the U.S. being an ally of Israel with lots of 
economic and you know cultural ties um, has a vested interest there and is part of the very complex web of how do we solve this thing well I think the endless wars in Afghanistan have proved the point that uh, deploying tanks is not really gonna solve anything because it hasn't solved it in Afghanistan so there's reason to believe that deploying tanks in Iran probably won't do a whole lot of good either. Yeah. Well, we'll have to sort of figure out the right ways to use military might uh, going forward. Uh, I was reading today about the Biden administration talking about other countries. Um, stopping the government use of the terms assimilation and illegal alien. Uh, have you read about this at all? Not really. The idea being that we're talking about people, even if they're not actually Americans, they are still people. Do you think labels like that, uh, words, uh, how we describe people, is something worth spending time on? Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, when I think of illegal alien, I kind of, and I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I think of a little green man. <laughs> okay, sure. I don't think sure. of a person. Right, that's what we think of and, as aliens. And just saying, hey, people are people. Therefore, we should call them people, yeah. not aliens. Aliens are aliens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a step in the right direction. And I mean, immigration has been at an all-time high for the U.S. And... I really like how Republicans are calling out Biden like, hey, there's a problem at the border. And Biden's like, all right, you want to fix it? What? No. Why would we do something like that? I feel like, you know, neither side can agree on what to do. Therefore, nothing will get done and the situation will just get worse. Like everything in American politics. It doesn't ever seem to get better. The U.S. has, as you mentioned earlier, the world's largest economy. Why don't we simply open the border and help everybody who needs help coming from other countries when they're oppressed? Well, you know, we have our own people to worry about. And there are legitimate fears of drug smuggling. Yeah, that, because we've totally stopped drugs otherwise. Yeah, and I mean, people should be free to come to the U.S. in search of a better life. But I've never heard any politician ever talk about actually the cause of it. If you want to mm -hmm. stop illegal immigration, then just stop the other countries from being so crappy. I mean, we screwed them over in the first place. Well, yeah, you know, so what do you, what's the solution? What do we do in Guatemala to help the government? What do we do with the Venezuelan government? Send in tanks? No. We have a lot of economic might. Why don't we throw that around? You don't think we've tried that? Yeah, what if we tried more, you know, humanitarian efforts? Mm, I see. Um, well, I don't know. I'm not well-versed enough in every diplomatic effort around those countries, but it does seem like there is something to trying to figure out if we can help people stay where they live, no matter where that is, and make a situation where they're not so desperate that they would walk on foot the length of Mexico, which north to south, it's a pretty big country. Mm -hmm. um, just to try to get to a border that, to a country they might not be able to get into, and sometimes giving their life savings to criminals to try to get them there. It seems like the situation must be pretty bad that they're leaving. 
Well, in countries like, let's see, let's go over them. Venezuela, they don't have an economy anymore. Mm. There's like 10,000% inflation and everyone's poor. Mm -hmm. uh, Honduras, that's the murder capital of the world. No explanation needed. Mm -hmm. Lulu, stop barking. Sorry if you hear the dog. She barks because she's a dog. It's because we didn't introduce her this week like we did last week. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of, you know, yeah. cartels and gang violence. Mm -hmm. So solving the problem of the drug cartels, by the way, with America being the by far the biggest user of illegal drugs and the biggest economic engine driving the cartels, fixing the drug problem in the U.S. would go a long way towards stabilizing neighboring countries countries in Central America and solving problems of people needing to flee. We should declare a drug czar and a war on drugs. Uh, I think we tried that. Yeah, but we did it kind of the wrong way. We went with the, all right, let's just lock up all of the drug users and not the actual drug dealers. That'll solve the problem. It wasn't quite exactly that, but sure. And that's what led to mass incarceration in the U.S., which is a whole nother subject. <laughs> yes, we could talk about uh, the decision to do, to criminalize marijuana and the political impact from the Nixon administration that led to the higher incarceration rate of one group in the country over another. Um, but we won't get into all that. Let's talk about news-wise things. How's all this news left you, young man, who's close to celebrating a birthday, left you feeling these days? And not very optimistic. I mean, there's a crisis at the border. Mm -hmm. Iran's having nuclear problems. We might just finally get out of Afghanistan. That's the one good thing. Uh -huh. Mass shootings are as rampant as ever. Mm. And no one's doing anything. Well, in the news business, we used to do something we called the kicker. So if you were watching television news, and I know you don't because you don't, yeah, but you know you'd watch the news, and there would be uh, half an hour of mostly bad news and some other. And at the end of the newscast, there'd be some sort of fun story that would make you smile. And I got this lesson many years ago from a, an executive producer at KTVU in San Francisco, who would produce this very big, you know, fifteen-minute-long first segment of news. And at the end of it, he'd always have a little kicker like that, a uh, little little lighthearted moment and I asked him about it and he said well we've just spent all this time telling everybody about all the awful things in the world they need to know that there are good things too and so that the world is all right so they can feel like hey no things are going to be okay and life isn't all depressing but you know we had to tell you about these important things so with that spirit of a kicker uh, my favorite video of the last week was the bobcat tossing uh, did you see that video Bobcat tossing. Huh? So, so this guy and his, I think it's his wife, are in the driveway, you know, getting, putting their things into a car. And suddenly a bobcat comes up and latches on to his wife from the back. He runs around, grabs a bobcat off of her, holds it up while he's walking with it, while it's kind of like, I don't know, hissing and swiping at him, and then throws it across the lawn. Um, apparently it ended up being rabid and they had to take care of it. But it was all caught on video. This guy, you know putting his coffee into the car or whatever, ends up wrestling a bobcat to save his wife. 
Wow, that's America for you. <laughs> that's if, America. If, if, that 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 is. Are you? Did this happen in Florida? No, it did not happen in Florida. Because Actually, I don't know where it happened. I think it was out west. Because if it did happen in Florida, that would be the most Florida thing I've ever heard. Oh, I've heard more Florida things. Yeah, like what? Give me one. Uh, like the alligator wrestling the python in the Everglades. Yeah, it's pretty Florida, pretty Florida but right? uh, no one's shooting fireworks while drunk. <laughs> well, ah, Florida. Well, well, you know, we should do a special Florida episode sometime. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah, you're right. It's not worth our whole time to talk about it. But we will see where this law goes. I'll bet you the law gets challenged in court. We'll see if it ever gets enacted. It's all kinds of, of, of craziness going on out there. But I think that we have talked through the news for this week. So I just want to say before we talk about next week that like many podcasts, we are using Post by Futuri to create, publish, and optimize this episode. Learn more why some of the top brands use Post at FuturiMedia.com. For another week, we have Lulu here. Say goodbye, Lulu. She's saying goodbye with her tail. And I'm Tim. I'm Ben. And this is me and my team and the news. Goodbye. And our dog. Oh yeah. Hi, Lulu. <laughs> Bye-bye.